Today you will hear from Allison Barren, a determined mom and scientist who is fighting to help her daughter and 500,000 other children who suffer from Angelman syndrome. We met Allison when she was connected with Lauren Black, a Charles River scientist who helped to develop an accelerated protocol to test her drug candidate for safety. Hi, Allison. Uh, thank you so much for joining us at Vital Science. Really excited to speak with you today. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. I am really interested to hear about your story, hear um, your background, and learn a little bit more about your family and the diagnosis of your daughter. Sure. I am the mother of three little girls. One is seven, one is five, and one is three. Uh, their names are Kai, Quincy, and Piper. And I am a veterinarian by training. I live in New York City, and I was a veterinarian for a decade before I had our first daughter, Kai. We are veterinary specialists, my husband and I both, and we work in, in Manhattan at one of the largest um, specialty hospitals in the world, actually. We always try to think outside of the box, and we um, are exactly that way, not only as veterinarians, but also um, apparently as parents <laughs> um, and in our life. And so when our um, second daughter was born, Quincy, our oldest daughter, Kai, was two. And what we realized was that she was born normal. I had a normal pregnancy and a normal delivery. And about three days of age, um, she started having significant reflux. And our older daughter never had that. We alerted the, the pediatrician and, and they said that, oh, she's a happy spitter. It's common in about 80% of babies. And there's nothing to worry about. And about two weeks in, we realized it was getting much worse, and she was really having a lot of trouble nursing and a lot of trouble taking a bottle. And so we went back to the pediatrician, and they put her on some medications, and consistently it was still getting worse. And that, that put us actually in, in the ER, um, in the emergency room, when she was 34 days old, because she was having a lot of trouble breathing. And every time she would drink from a bottle um, or try to nurse, she would just aspirate, and she was having a lot of trouble breathing. So we took her to the emergency room, and at that time, she was diagnosed um, with a complication of reflux called laryngomalacia. And we, we actually were admitted to the hospital for eight days, at which time they um, assessed her very thoroughly, and they diagnosed her after a scope with this condition called laryngomalacia, which is associated with reflux. And all of the doctors basically said that she should live in vertical um, for the next six months of her life because she had very severe reflux. And um, we had to get her to take you know, some, some formula or some milk in order for her to, you know, obviously thrive. Um, but we were having a really hard time getting it down her without her spinning it all up. And so that resulted in her getting a feeding tube in her nose. Um, but she's um, pretty determined to get that feeding tube out at 34 days of age. And so she only lasted that, um, that only lasted in her about 36 hours. And then she actually pulled it out herself. And uh, she was evaluated by the pediatric team at the hospital at Columbia Medical Center. She got evaluated, and one of the doctors said to us, oh, it's so interesting, you know, she's rolling over at a month of age, and most kids don't roll over until they're three or four months of age. That's really strange. And so we, we thought in our head, wow, well, we have a precocious baby. She's advanced. Um, and that was the end of that, and everything was pushed to, to GI, and we were speaking with various GI specialists about her reflux. And strangely, um, we got her home and we wound up switching her formula to a full soy formula because she didn't tolerate any of the other formulas, even though they told us it wasn't a food allergy or a food hypersensitivity. But we tried, we were willing to try anything because we couldn't get this kid to eat and she was going to need a permanent feeding tube if we didn't do something about it. Suddenly her reflux went away and it took 48 hours for her to get dramatically better. And they told us that the reflux would get better over about three to six months. But regardless, she should really live in vertical and she shouldn't be put on tummy time. And she shouldn't really um, do a lot of the exercises that you do with a normal newborn. And so that's what we did. And fast forward to about three months of age where the reflux was much, much better. We realized that certain things weren't happening with her. Like she wasn't tracking toys. She really wasn't rolling over anymore. Um, she really had a, a strong head. So she was able to hold her head up really, really well. And she had a pretty um, strong um, support to her core. But she really wasn't um, bearing much weight on her legs, which is not that abnormal for a three-month-old. But more importantly, she really wasn't tracking, wasn't making eye contact. So we went back to the pediatrician and they basically thought, okay, well, you know, not everybody is on the same pace and she hasn't had much tummy time. So a lot of her developmental milestones might be a little bit delayed, but she's only three months and 
um, she's really quite typical. Nothing checks out abnormal. And you really have to just get out of your head um, that she's going to be a precocious little girl like your older daughter was. Then about a month later, we brought her back and we felt like she still was missing more and more milestones. And, you know, when you're a new mom, you get these alerts on your phone, um, part of something called Baby Center that tells you what your child should be doing at every month of age. And we would get these alerts of all the things she should be doing and we should be looking forward to. And we realized she wasn't doing any of those things. And we started to get really nervous. So we went back to the pediatrician at four months and said, you know, we really think something's wrong with her. And we really feel that the gap is getting bigger and not smaller. And I was a bit more in denial than my husband was. He was a lot more realistic, I think, of what was going on. And I just felt like she went through a lot and she had, you know, she had to to go through everything that first month of life, that that set her back a little bit, but she would eventually catch up. And so my heart wanted to believe that everything was fine and trust the pediatrician. Um, But as both of us being clinicians, we both knew what our other daughter was like and we knew where she should be on all the things we were reading. And we really knew that something wasn't right with her. We asked if we can um, see a neurologist and, and we called to see that neurologist and we were told, now remember she's four months old, we were told that um, the next available appointment was in six months. We were about to make an appointment to see a neurologist that was almost double her lifespan away. And we felt like that was really difficult for us to wait for six Mm -hmm. more months for a child that was clearly having some issues. She also wasn't tracking and wasn't, you know, making great eye contact. So he recommended that maybe we want to see an ophthalmologist. We got that appointment pretty quickly. She did have something called strabismus where one of her eyes was turning out a little bit more. And we thought, well, maybe that's, maybe that's the problem. And so, you know, then we learned that a very large percentage of babies have strabismus and that usually doesn't result in poor vision. He said, yeah, she's globally delayed um, and we can't fix that strabismus until she's a year of age, but I don't believe the strabismus is the issue. I believe that it's cortical, meaning it's in her brain. And so then we pushed a little bit harder to see that neurologist. And because we're in the veterinary profession and because we also do a lot of work with human MDs, we reached out to somebody that we knew at at some of the hospitals and we said, what are the chances that you can help us get a sooner appointment with a pediatric neurologist? We got a phone call that they were um, able to actually see us uh, within two weeks. So we made an appointment for two weeks later, thank goodness. So now she's about five and a half months old. And we went and saw that neurologist and we walked into the room and they basically told us nothing's wrong with her. Um, He said that, yeah, she's a little bit delayed, but we can explain that from her having these, um, you know, having had the reflux and not being in tummy time. At this point, I started realizing my husband was right and we started pushing for more testing. She still had at that point an open fontanelle, which is that um, the sutures of the skull, they don't close until about six to nine months of age, maybe even a year of age. So about five and a half months, it was still open. And so we asked if we can have an ultrasound of her head just to be sure she didn't have something like hydrocephalus or something like that. We didn't really want to anesthetize her for an MRI or anything. We hadn't done an amniocentesis on her because um, a, a new test had come out called the panorama. And that new test was able to detest in the maternal blood some of this uh, fetal DNA and really screen for a lot of the diseases that you test for on an amniocentesis. We were under the impression falsely that it detected a lot of the genetic uh, disorders that you would get on an amnio without the risk. So now we decided let's do a karyotype and let's get full genetic testing on her. And um, our neurologist had said, you know, nothing's going to come up on that. And it's really something the insurance company is not going to cover because it's really not indicated. But we decided that we would do it anyway and that we would pay for it out of pocket. So we went ahead and did that test. And um, two weeks later, we didn't actually get a phone call about the results. We called them for the results and they told us that everything was normal. We were very happy that genetically she seemed fine. And it was at that time that we went back for our next exam. And she was now almost six and a half months old. And on that exam, he said, it looks like she's making some progress. I see that she's starting to track and I think she's starting to grab toys because she was grabbing onto some of the toys he put in her hand. And um, she's definitely not regressing. And most kids with neurologic disorders at this young age would be regressing. And she's not. She's progressing. She's making progress. So I really think nothing is wrong with her. So we said, okay. Um, And one thing he did say that really stuck with me was, um, you know, worst case scenario, she might have a little bit of cerebral palsy. And for a parent to hear that in their six-month-old child, that that's the worst case scenario, 
And to blow that off, that diagnosis off when cerebral palsy is a really significant disorder was really disheartening. We heard that. And of course, we were devastated just to hear those words that it's not that important. It's just a little cerebral palsy, worst case scenario. And so we then at that time decided we wanted a second opinion. And so we reached out to another neurologist and, and we were able to see them through a friend of a friend um, in, at a different hospital in New York City. And when we met with that neurologist, they kind of gave us the same story, like there's probably nothing really wrong with her. She has a little bit of low tone in her arms and a little bit of high tone in her legs, but you know, she looks pretty good to me. And it was right about that time that we had also requested to see a geneticist. And we wanted to make sure that something wasn't missing on her genetic testing. And we wanted to just leave no stone unturned. And this is the way that we work in veterinary medicine. So if there's a sick animal, we're not going to leave it as, well, I don't know, and then send a, a client away with their pet to say that there's nothing that we can figure out and you just have to live with it. We're going to leave no stone unturned until we figure out what's wrong with that, with that patient. And so we were treating our daughter exactly the same way. And so we went and uh, scheduled an appointment with a geneticist. And the night before our appointment with the geneticist, which is now about two weeks later, so now she's about six and a half months old, um, almost seven months old. We um, were preparing for our appointment and we got a phone call. It was four o'clock on a Thursday um, afternoon and we had our appointment with the geneticist on Friday. And I picked up the phone and it was her neurologist. And the neurologist said, Miss um, Brent, I have some catastrophic news for you. And that was it. My goodness. And so his next, his next words were, so um, her karyotype came back normal, but her next test, her microarray, um, just came in. And those results say that she has a microdeletion of chromosome 15. And that means she either has Angelman syndrome or Prader-Willi syndrome. I'm on the phone in a coffee shop, and my first response is, can you spell that? And I'm on my computer, so the only thing I could do was put it into Google, which is the worst thing you probably could do as a parent is Google something medical about your child. And so the first thing that came up was Wikipedia, which is also not really a great place to look. Um, and we read all of these things about the word Angelman syndrome, and she fit every single one of the characteristics of that disorder. And we knew at that time that that was what she had. And we went in the next morning to uh, speak to the geneticist and they handed us a packet of information about Prader-Willi syndrome. And we looked at him and we said, well, she has Angelman. She doesn't have Prader-Willi. And he said, well, your neurologist told me she has Prader-Willi. And that's when I realized that we knew a lot more in 12 hours of educating ourselves through Dr. Google than this neurologist knew about this disorder. Because if you read the characteristics of Angelman and the characteristics of Prader-Willi, it was very clear which disorder she had. And really, I think it was that moment that we both realized that we were always likely going to know more about this disorder than any of her doctors. And we were going to have to advocate for her and what we needed to do to help her more than any of the doctors probably could. And that really was a turning point for us, not only, of course, in our life, but in how we were going to handle this diagnosis. And so we talked to the geneticist and he was lovely. And when he, after he evaluated her, he knew Angelman and he clearly knew she had Angelman. And they needed to do one more test to prove that it was Angelman because Prader-Willi is, the, is the, basically the brother disorder to Angelman syndrome. We got that, that other blood test done and she, of course, was confirmed to have a deletion of chromosome 15, um, which was on the mother's copy of the gene, which was consistent with Angelman syndrome. And so what did we do um, besides collapse and, you know, have incredible deep sorrow for the little girl that we lost? Um, we had to accept the new little baby we were gaining. And we had to understand what this meant for not only her life, but for our life and her, the life of her older sister. And so everything changed at that moment. Um, but instead of being sad, which we were, the sadness you know, certainly lasted a year, but the devastation, um, we treat it in different ways. And the way that I handled that devastation was knowledge, because I felt like knowledge would be power. And so we learned everything we could about Angelman. 
And we just started reading. We started pulling every journal article, every scholastic um, piece of information that was out there that we could read and understand. And, you know, I have a a medical degree, so both my husband and I understand science. We understand medicine. We're clinicians. We understand patients and we understand, um, you know, bedside manner and and quality of life. But what we really um, haven't looked at in a very long time was genetics. Um, Neither one of us are geneticists and neither one of us ever wanted to be a neurologist. And suddenly we were both a geneticist and a neurologist. And uh, we changed from veterinary to human very, very quickly because we had no choice. And so we read everything. And um, about a week later, a a paper came out at a Nature, which is obviously one of the most highly regarded uh, scientific journals in the world, on Angelman syndrome. And what came out of that was that Angelman syndrome had been um, essentially cured in a mouse model. And what they did was, it's a very unique disorder. Um, the disorder is, an, is um, called an imprinting disorder, which is very, very unique. And what that means is that in our brain, we only need one copy of this gene. Um, and we all have two copies of every gene. All humans have two copies of every gene, or, sh- or they should. And um, we only need one copy of this gene. But it just so turns out that in the brain, um, the mother's copy is what's read in all of us. And the father's copy is silent in all of us. And so she had a normal father's copy that was silent, but she's missing her mother's copy. Just like all kids with Angelman syndrome, they're either missing it or, or it's not working properly. And so um, when we really tried to understand the um, implications of this and what this meant as an imprinting disorder, what we realized was that she only has a disorder of her neurons. Um, when we were told about the diagnosis, the first thing we were told was that she'll never walk. She'll never talk. Um, she will never live an independent life. She won't likely um, go to college and she won't have relationships like normal children would. Um, she will need to be dependent on others for the rest of her life. And that meant that she would also have a pretty significant seizure disorder. And many times those seizures are very uncontrolled. Um, she may never get to feed herself. She may never be able to do independent life skills because her fine motor skills and her gross motor skills will be far too compromised to do, to do that. So this is monogenetic. She's not dying. Her nerves are not dying. She has a copy of the gene that's missing, but she has a copy of that gene that's silent. So it seemed very logical that you can activate that silent copy of that gene and then give her back what she's missing. And if she doesn't have a degenerative disorder, there's no reason to believe that she couldn't tremendously benefit from that in her life. And so we started reading all about how that would be done. And and a week after her diagnosis, a paper came out out of nature, like I said, And they had done exactly that. They had activated the paternal copy of the gene in the brain of mice. And mice have a a, a classic um, presentation when they have Angelman syndrome. And when they gave these adult mice this drug in their brain and activated that single gene on the father's side, what happened was that they were able to rescue a lot of the symptoms of Angelman syndrome. And so it was at that time that I realized um, we her future was not going to be what the doctor told us on the phone that Thursday afternoon. And that this could translate into human application because that's what we do. We translate things from animals and from concept into patients and from animals into humans. So there has to be a path forward here. And so I emailed the, um, the clinician who was on that paper out of nature, who was a geneticist at Baylor College of Medicine, Dr. Art Odet, And I emailed him figuring what do I have to lose? So I introduced myself as a veterinarian and the mother of a newly diagnosed little girl who was six months old with Angelman. And he responded to my email in two hours. And not only that, but he agreed to have a phone conversation with my husband and I that Sunday morning. And we spoke to him for two hours about what he did in these mice and how this could be transformative for humans with Angelman. So he's a physician, a geneticist who knows the patients and also knows the animal model. And so I was so honored to speak to this man. And what I realized was that he discovered something that could be transformative for these children. 500,000 kids potentially have Angelman syndrome in the world. And he just discovered something that could be completely transformative for these children. And nothing had been done like this before um, in humans. And nothing had been published before in Angelman syndrome. So I got on... Um, email and I just started writing every scientist I could that had been working in the Angelman space that had been developing or looking at different therapeutic platforms for the disorder. Most of them responded to me. 
And I started getting very educated and I started to realize that they were very open to pushing this forward. Um, A lot of them didn't know how, but they were very excited to push this forward and they wanted to be a part of that. And so I started looking into what was out there in terms of um, parent and patient advocacy. And up to this point, I really didn't know how to talk to anybody about it. I didn't know any other family that had the disorder. I reached out to our pediatrician. How do we get involved in in social media or in a listserv or in a support group? Like, what do we do? We felt so alone and we thought we were the only people in the world with this disorder. But they said one in 15,000 kids have it. And if you do the math, that's like, you know, 500,000 kids in the world. And if that's the case, where are all these kids and where are all these families? And found this listserv um, on Google and I emailed like a cry for help asking if I can talk to another parent of a child with this disorder. And the first parent that wrote me back um, happened to be a scientist who has had a daughter or has a daughter with Angelman and her daughter at that time was 10 years old. And um, we talked on the phone and she gave me a lot of advice and she was part of a foundation called the Foundation for Angelman Syndrome Therapeutics. And then I learned that there was a foundation. And so there were two foundations in the United States and I called, um, I, the, the first one I found online um, was called the Angelman Syndrome Foundation. And so I called them and I spoke to the chairperson of the foundation and, um, and really the response that I got at that time was that, oh, a lot of the work that you're reading about and a lot of these animal studies are really nowhere near human clinical trials and that may not happen in your daughter's lifetime, but we're certainly going to try. And so I felt a little down and I felt like, you know, there was a long way to go before these animal studies might translate to my child. Um, But then I started asking the question, why? Why why is it going to take so long? What is the limitations? And and there were no answers for that when I asked that question. And so um, about nine months later was a scientific conference that one of the foundations was having. And Usually parents aren't invited to these conferences because they're really meant to be scientific level. And there's another conference for parents, but I felt like I needed to hear the science and I felt that my husband and I could understand it and that we had a right to listen to that if most of this work is being funded by families. So we signed up to go to the scientific conference as veterinarians and we did, and we listened our hearts out. And what we heard was that there was really, really amazing work going on in the Angelman space that even though I had read every paper I could find, um, was incredibly impressive. And the amount of money that these scientists were getting from the NIH and from the foundations was just pretty incredible. And so I became, again, quite optimistic that there is a lot of research being done and a lot of it's not published yet, um, but there's a lot going on. And as I was listening to all of these people speak, um, one one talk really stood out to me. And and that was this one about um, the discovery of cortical visual impairment in mice with Angelman syndrome and how they they didn't have great visual tracks and they couldn't see very well. And um, the woman stood up there, a PhD student, talking about this finding in in mice and how she got all this money from the NIH to to do this work. And they didn't know why the mice couldn't see and and they didn't know much about why they couldn't see. And they were figuring out all the pathways um, that were abnormal in in these mice. And what they discovered was more questions to ask. So they applied for more grant funding to ask, answer the questions they just discovered. And it was this cycle of discover questions, ask questions, which discovers more questions, and then you ask more questions. And that's science, and that's brilliant. Um, but what no one said in that entire talk, and what no one even mentioned, was that children with Angelman syndrome have cortical visual impairment, just like my daughter. And that is present in about 30% of kids with Angelman. And what I really realized at that moment in that room was that we had some really brilliant minds speaking, but there was no connection by most of these people. Now, some of them had a real beautiful connection to the kids, and that was clear, but a lot of them didn't. And they weren't translating what they were discovering these animal models to what actually humans are living with every day. I raised my hand um, very diplomatically and humbly, and I said, um, do you understand the translation that this has for the human patient? And her answer was no. And I said, well, do you know that about 30% of kids with Angelman have cortical visual impairment? And this is exactly what you've discovered in the mouse model, which is awesome. But there are humans living with this, and they usually grow out of it with proper vision therapy. And she had no idea. And that was a real turning point for me. Not only did I 
appreciate the brilliant science that was happening, but I also appreciated that there were very few scientists in the room that were trying to make that link to the human condition, even though a lot of this funding was coming from patient organizations. And I started you know, asking these types of questions. And the more I talked to the different scientists, the more I realized some of them were very focused on the patient and some of them had already actually started a clinical trial for Angelman syndrome patients using something they discovered in a mouse model called minocycline, which is an antibiotic. But that antibiotic rescued a lot of the symptoms in the mouse. And they started the clinical trial in humans. And this was funded by one of the foundations, the other foundation that um, was not having the conference called FAST. And the foundation funded a clinical trial to look at minocycline in kids with Angelman based on the mouse work that was done. And I was so blown away by the different dynamic and the different um, ability for people to translate or not translate. And so it was at that time that I, um, I realized that a lot of work needed to be done. And um, a lot of the science that was brilliant needed help being translated. And that leap from the academic lab to industry or to, to clinical trials in humans was a black hole. And that's known. You know, there's a lot of things that die in academic labs that never take that leap. But there was no way that we were going to let that happen for Angelman syndrome. And if we could do anything we can to help pull things from the academic lab into human clinical trials, that that's where we're strong. We're clinicians. And we needed to put our clinician hat on and say, what can we do to help this process? And so I made it very clear that that's what I'm good at. And I would be happy to help anybody try to translate their science if there was benefit for me helping them. And about a month went by and I got a phone call from the chairperson of the other foundation, the Foundation for Angelman Syndrome Therapeutics, who I had never met before. Um, and I really didn't know much about her. And um, what I realized was that she was doing exactly what I wanted to do in my mind for the last seven years. She started this foundation, her daughter, when her daughter was four years old, her name is Paula Evans. And her daughter was now um, 11, 10 and a half, and she ex wanted to do exactly what I had in my head. And she had been doing this now for seven years, and they had made so much beautiful progress. A lot of it wasn't published, so I was unaware of it at the time. Um, but I was blown away by all the work that they had been doing, and they'd been setting this groundwork for a lot of the research that had been done and that was dying in these academic labs in order to push them forward and try to be that gap between the academic lab and human clinical trials and de-risk it so that pharmaceutical companies would want to take it if it was de-risked further out of the academic lab. So they were funding these scientists to do that. And so I was so happy to meet her, and I was so happy to see all the work that FAST was doing. And I um, was asked at that time if I would join the board of directors of FAST. And so I agreed to do that because I felt like I would um, be able to have a bigger impact, and I might be able to volunteer my time and use my expertise to really help that process that they had set this mission out to do. They would have calls once a week where all of them from six different labs would come together on a phone call and they would help each other. And they were looking at animal models in order to translate that. And they had a clinician on the call as well who's a neurologist who would be able to help translate that to the human, um, the human perspective. What I realized was I was asking questions that they weren't always thinking about because they don't live with the disorder. They live with the mice and the rats that have this, this disorder. I was able to kind of bring in a different perspective, a clinician perspective, a clinical trial perspective, as well as a patient and parent perspective. It was at uh, probably about three months into my, um, into my joining the team as a scientific director that I um, was asked to be the chief science officer for the foundation. My first mission when I became the chief science officer was to develop a roadmap, a roadmap to cure Angelman. What do we need to cure this disorder? What is missing? What technology is out there that we haven't yet explored? And what are all the pieces that we need in order to have effective clinical trials for kids with Angelman? How do I fill that black hole to the best of our abilities? And so we talked to all of our scientists and we talked to some um, consultants and we created this roadmap. We brought in two pharmaceutical companies that were already at the table, one of which was looking at a, um, a molecule, like a, a, a drug that would help with seizures and sleep. I talked with them. And they said that what they needed was outcome measures to be able to know how to test it in a clinical trial and that they were two years away from a hum human clinical trial for Angelman. And then another company came into the mix about a month later, um, which was a gene replacement therapy. And this company was called Agilis Biotherapeutics, and they've just been acquired now by PTC Therapeutics. 
and Agilis, um, they were wonderful and they um, were developing a, a gene replacement therapy for Angelman out of one of the academic labs that we were working with at the University of South Florida. And that was out of a lot of the work that we had funded as a foundation um, to do in the mouse model. And so we were seeing the translation of gene replacement therapy right there. It was leaving the academic lab and moving into industry. So we were really excited about that. So what other gaps did we have? And, and we were looking at CRISPR technology and all of the new things. And we reached out to different um, clinicians in those areas and different um, researchers in order to start programs for Angelman there. And so what we did was we asked every one of our of our team, of our, our we called our fast fire team, which is a, a consortium of these scientists, to take their therapeutic strategy and give us a two-year Gantt chart about what it was going to take for them to be ready for IND enabling studies in 24 months. And they looked at us with big eyes and said, we need 24 months. And I said, well, you have something very promising. What is taking so long for this to be translated into humans? What can we do to have a 24-month timeline for you to be ready with your, with your platform for 24 months so that we can put this through an IND and be ready for a human trial? And um, after the big eyes and the drop jaw, um, they said that they needed money and people. And we said, well, that both of which we can find. If it was the science that wasn't possible, that's one thing. But if it's money and people, we can find money and people. So I asked for a budget and I said, what is it going to cost? And lay out the details of that budget through consulting and through some advice of people that have done this before and, um, and them going back to their labs and the, the experience that they had already had, which some of them did have some experience um, with this, they put together a program. And that program came to $5.8 million. And this was something that we were very excited about because it's really easy to have a foundation and just to say, well, we need to raise money. But it's really hard to raise money if you don't have an ask, if you don't know what you're asking for. What is our goal? Our goal is to cure Angelman syndrome. Well, how are we going to do that? And what's the roadmap to get that done? And so this is what the foundation had been really trying to do for the last seven years. I don't want to pretend that that's something I invented. Um, but I was just able to take that and be a little bit more definitive about it and say, okay, I need money. I need dollar signs. I need to know exactly how we're doing this. And they had done so much work in seven years to get us to the point that we could translate that into dollars and cents on what we needed because the preclinical work, the proof of concept had been done. So let's get out of the NIH, let's get out of academic research and let's move this into industry. What can we do here? And so that's where we were. And we set up a mission of a, um, a, a fundraising campaign to raise $5.8 million. And so we were just, you know, in that, in that discussion of how we were going to do this fundraising campaign when um, I got a phone call from a, a good friend that I had met at the time that Quincy was diagnosed through Facebook. And so what I didn't know when she was diagnosed is that listservs are old news, but Facebook is new news. Um, and there are lots of social groups on Facebook that um, really help. They have different types of groups, research groups and support groups and family groups and kids under four years of age and adults and adolescents. And there was a really nice network of support and families. And one of the groups is a research group. And of course, I joined the research group. And so was this other parent. And we were very like-minded. We would ask very similar questions. And when we would ask those questions, um, one of us would answer the other person's question. So we were finding that we had a very similar perspective of always asking questions of people and asking why. And we became good friends, but you know, virtual good friends over Facebook. And we had similar age children. His son was two years older than my daughter. And so he called and said, you know, my wife and I are coming to New York and we'd love to have lunch with you guys. And um, so, of course, we were so excited for them to meet Quincy and, and to meet them in person. And they're from the UK, um, but they're both French. And um, we had lunch and we were, you know, enjoying ourselves and we were talking. And suddenly um, he asked me a question and he said, what is it going to take to cure this disorder? And I showed him our roadmap to a cure. And I said, this is what it's going to take. Um, and this is kind of what we've laid out and, and we're really excited about this plan and we're going to, you know, we're going to hopefully be launching this campaign. Um, but really, these are the details and this is what it's going to take. And so I showed him um, that at the time, the estimate was just under six million dollars. And he turned to his wife and he looked at us and he said, um, well, you know, I have a family foundation and we can support this work and we can fund this. 
And I looked at my husband and he looked at me and we looked at them and we were like, who are you? And what do you mean? You have $5.8 million that you can support this? And he said, um, he said, yes. Um, do you think that you could put together a meeting for my family to come and meet these scientists and present all of this work that you have laid out here? Because we're obviously not going to give you $5.8 million without tremendous amount of due diligence. Um, but I believe in you and I believe in FAST and I believe in what you guys have done and what you plan to do. And I think my family will believe in it as well. So not even a month later, his entire family came over from the UK and France and um, their investors and their, um, their foundational um, you know, uh, members, their board members, and all of our scientists um, came in, they flew in and we set up a meeting and everyone um, presented their work and presented their roadmap for 24 months to be an IND with their, with their platform, whether it was an ASO, gene replacement therapy, protein replacement therapy, artificial transcription factors, and the like. Um, and at the end of that meeting, it was eight hours, a lot of science, um, a lot of discussion. And at the end of that meeting, um, basically, they wrote us a check for $5.8 million. And that's really when everything changed for Angelman syndrome research in my eyes. It, it was that moment that I had faith in mankind again for the first time in a couple of years. And I had something to focus on. Want even more science stories? Head over to eureka.criver.com to listen to Sounds of Science. Join me, Mary Parker, as I interview drug discovery researchers, thought leaders on trending industry topics, and patients with a personal stake in the newest pharma research. I cover topics from horseshoe crab evolution to cancer treatment with guests who bring a big picture perspective to science stories. Tune in every month for Sounds of Science at eureka.criver.com. So our scientists went to work and they were so, so committed to get this done. They took this so incredibly seriously. And it was only six months into this 24 month plan that one of the, the, the approaches, one of the programs, discovered that their ASO, their antisense oligonucleotide, that they had been working on in this region that they had been targeting was incredible. And that the, the human candidate that they had discovered activated the paternal copy of the gene, the father's gene, by 100% in, in human neurons. He had, this this um, scientist, Dr. Scott Dindo, he spent his entire career understanding this imprint, understanding why this is happening, understanding the, the region and, and the, the areas about this that are super important that you don't want to target and areas that you might want to target. And he spent 80 hours a week for probably 20 years working on this. And he discovered an ESO that um, targeted a region that he felt was so important. And it just so turned out this region was conserved across almost all species. And so he called us. I actually got a text message from him at midnight on a Friday with just a graph. And he said, you will never believe this. And he showed me this graph. And myself and, and our, our um, chairperson, Paula Evans, and we were like on text, like screaming. And Paula and I talked a lot about this. And when we discovered this was real, we decided that we were going to start a company and that our foundation um, could help support that potentially. And so we talked to our board and we wanted to propose to start a company where the foundation would support the IND enabling studies and get this to, ready for a human clinical trial and further de-risk this approach so that we would be prepared to translate this into humans without waiting for a pharmaceutical company to be ready. So that pharmaceutical company that I had talked to, um, who I believe is truly committed to Angelman syndrome, and they're wonderful, and the people there have been so incredible. Every year that we would talk about updates on where they were, remember in 2015, they were two years away from a clinical trial. In 2016, they were still two years away from a clinical trial. And in 2017, they were still two years away from a clinical trial. And so that two years, which was too long for me, just became four, five, six years. And I, um, I realized that we couldn't put all our eggs in one basket. And I, I believed in them and I trusted them, but I had to agree that there are, it's better to have more than one option. Our goal was to de-risk this so a pharmaceutical company would find this so appealing because we'd done all the work for them that suddenly we would be their priority. Because right now, people were interested in Angelman, but we were, you know, 50th on the list. We were not the top of their list. We were not on their website. We were not in their pipeline. We weren't talked about at their JP Morgan meetings. 
um, you know, when they give their presentations about all of the, the diseases that they're working on, Angelman never was discussed. And we created a virtual company where we had advisors in every area of drug development, from manufacturing to um, ethics to regu- regulatory, non-clinical toxicology, um, really every every avenue, medical, neurology, um, you know, science, and and the imprint. And we brought on obviously the inventor, Dr. Scott Dindo, as the chief science officer of the company. I became the chief operating officer of the company, and Paula Evans became the chief executive officer of the company. And we were smart enough to know what we don't know. We brought on all of the best people. We researched tremendously. And one of the lead key people that we brought on was um, somebody who um, was the head of regulatory at another company that was working in antisense oligonucleotides. And it just so turns out, aside from her being absolutely brilliant and really knowing drug development so incredibly well, that she has a niece with Angelman syndrome. We needed investor money because the foundation couldn't afford to do this by by themselves. But really, the goal of the foundation was to be able to de-risk this so that ultimately the company would be taken on by a a larger pharmaceutical company. And then any profits that we gained from that would go back to the foundation to support children in in the world getting treated for their disorder so that we could do patient assistance funding and that we could support any further research that we need in order to make therapeutics the best of the best and that we can ensure that every child gets treated you know when a treatment is available for them and that we can ensure that we can support um, education and, and um, therapeutics and medications and things like that the company started IND enabling studies in uh, the summer of 2018 and we had our first in vivo animals dosed with our drug GTX 102 in uh, August of 2018. Our studies started, like I said, in August of 2018. And um, as we grew, we realized that we needed to think about a feasible and clinical trial because what we were seeing in our animal models was, or our, our, um, the animals that were being dosed was that not only was this drug incredibly, you know, w- was showing promise for, for what the FDA was going to need to see to allow for it to go forward um, to a phase one, two clinical trial, um, but we needed to be prepared to fund that phase one, two clinical trial because we don't want to have a drug that the FDA says is good to go um, to test in humans. And we can't afford to do that. And again, the foundation couldn't afford to do that. So we decided that we needed to fundraise. And so we initially started our fundraising with just some um, some angel investors. And those investors were, um, were parents and, and loved ones touched by people with angel men. And that was enough money for us to get through those IND enabling studies. And then we needed more money to get to a phase one, two clinical trial, or we needed to, to have a pharmaceutical company come in and take this early on. And so we went ahead and we contacted various different um, investing opportunities, one of which was VCs, um, one of which was pharmaceutical companies. And we talked to dozens and dozens of people and we were so blown away by the interest in the company and the interest in taking this forward and how much work we have done and how much we have de-risked this and how promising this therapeutic looked for a potential treatment for, for humans with Angelman syndrome. And so everything was really aligning quite nicely. And it was at that time that we got a bunch of different offers on how we can fund our phase one clinical trial. We decided to partner with a pharmaceutical company. We partnered with Ultragenics Pharmaceuticals. And Ultragenics is known for ultra-rare diseases. August of 2019, they partnered with Genetics, and that gave them the option to um, acquire the company. And so where we stand now is they are our partner. They're helping us run this phase one, two clinical trial. They are helping to fund it as well, because obviously we couldn't afford to fund it without them. And they are um, giving us a ton of their full-time employees to help support the trial. And the development plan for the for the drug over the over the um, the next couple of years, with the hopeful goal of them to acquire the company and take that forward for a pivotal clinical trial. And so, with that, it kept us very involved, which is really nice because if somebody just came in and took us over, I can guarantee you that the timelines would not have been met that we had set for ourselves because that never happens. And so, we set a timeline from the first in vivo study for one year. And that doesn't happen typically because there's usually a lot of people that have so many 
um, so many balls that they're juggling and so many different programs that they're working on that they can't pivot very well and they can't be so nimble to change things around when you get new data and you see new things that may require you to adjust dosages or adjust drug candidates or adjust the way that you're, you're looking at things. We were able to do that in the drop of a dime. We were able to make decisions very, very quickly and use our consultants um, in every way that we needed to, to focus just on this program. And so because of that, all of our IND enabling studies were completed in approximately 12 months, just like we had said. Then we applied for our IND. Um, we applied to the FDA for a phase one, two clinical trial, and our IND was cleared for that trial in January of 2020. We are now open to be able to have a phase one, two clinical trial for humans in the next um, few months. And we are now just getting all of those things in order to start that trial in the very, very near term. Ultimately, they'll be the first in human clinical trial for a, uh, a gene altering therapeutic that could um, you know, really change the path forward for a treatment for these kids with Indian syndrome. And that is just unbelievably incredible. And I'm just so honored to have played a role there and to be a part of that and to continue to be a part of that. So that, that's where we are. Congratulations to you on that progress. It's just unfathomable almost. It's so impressive. Uh, will Quincy be part of the trial? That's a really great question. I hope so, but I don't know. There'll be only 20 children enrolled in the trial for the phase one, two, and a lot more hopefully in the phase three. And it will be uh, the, the children will be selected based on inclusion and exclusion criteria by the sites and, and by the clinicians that are assessing those patients. So she'll, she'll apply like every other child in this country, and uh, she'll have a chance, you know, out of 20 kids, out of however many kids apply, she'll have the same chance. There's no way that she's advantaged for my, my involvement in this company, but thank goodness she's also not disadvantaged. So she's going to have just as good of a chance as anybody else. Wonderful. And, and what do you see for the future of this work? So the trial will start, and, and then what do you see coming next? The goal of this phase one trial is to look at the safety and tolerability of this drug. And so we really hope that um, we can show that this drug is safe. It's a short-term clinical trial, so we um, are not, we're exploring efficacy endpoints to see if it works. And, you know, the types of things we're looking at are, um, do the kids become more communicative? Do they have better expression of language, better receptive language? Um, are they able to use their communication device better? Are they able to speak? Are they able to use word approximations? How do they walk? Do they walk better compared to baseline? Do they have less seizures compared to baseline? How does their EEG look in their brain and how do their brain waves look? So we're exploring a whole bunch of things um, in order to see if anything moves in the short duration of this study, but it's a very short duration. And, you know, we really don't know um, how long it might take to see things change in individuals that were born with a neurogenetic disorder. We know it's not degenerative. Um, and we know that they have the potential to see change as did the rodents. But, you know, humans are not small mice and mice are not small humans. So, I mean, humans are not big mice and mice are not small humans. Mm -hmm. So we don't know what's going to happen. Um, we could see something dramatic at, or we may not see much at all in the near term. Um, but really what we're hoping for, number one, is that this is safe. And then if we have any signals of efficacy so that we can move forward into a longer term study to really look at that. And so more than anything, I think what this has done, what it has allowed, it, it has allowed a rare disease to push something forward with a single mission and for a foundation to see the vision of that and to allow for um, something like this, for this black hole of drug development to be leaped over and for that bridge to be crossed because of the motivation and the commitment of amazing scientists, families, and consultants that were willing to see this vision and have the optimism that this could happen. We were told so many times there's no way we could do this. We were told by so many industry people that we're out of our mind that we don't know anything about drug development and that this was not going to be possible. And I think that that's, that really proved to a lot of people and a lot of families that live with other rare diseases and other foundations that live with other rare diseases, that this is really possible. And I hope that we can serve as a model for other disorders to be able to do something similar to what we did. And, you know, I think part of 
the reason that we were able to do this is because not only were we nimble as individuals um, that work for the company, but our consultants were super nimble, you know, so they don't live with the disorder, but they saw the vision. They were touched by our story. They met our kids. They came to our foundational events, you know, five people or four people from Charles River came to our foundational annual event to see it firsthand, to meet some of the children, to listen to the scientists, to watch our biggest fundraiser of the year, and to feel a part of the mission that they were working toward. When they are looking at our animals being dosed with this drug, they're looking in the eyes of you know a future child that hopefully will see this drug one day. And that just changes how people work and how people can um, be willing to make changes quickly and not delay things and meet timelines and deliverables. And for that, we, will, we are forever grateful. Well, your story is so motivational. It's so filled with hope. If people want to keep track of, of the work and learn more, how do they do that? Where do they go for that information? The best place to go is um, www.cureangelman.org, which is the foundational website. And on the foundational website, all programs of all, um, all platforms of drugs are, are updated. So not just the work of genetics, um, but the work of everybody. Because now, um, since we announced genetics and since we're moving forward, just so you know that other things have changed as well, um, now just announced in December of this year, um, there's two other pharmaceutical companies that are working um, with ASOs for Angelman syndrome. And both of those announced as well that they should be in clinical trials at, on the second half of 2020. Um, so if we've done nothing more, we've motivated other people mm -hmm. to work faster. Um, which is fantastic. That uh, is the best website to really get educated about this, the disease, um, about the, the children and what is available uh, for these children and what will be coming online that will be available for these children, which is going to be hopefully many, many options because none of us want to put all our eggs in one basket. Wonderful. Great to hear that. Well, thank you so much for today. Really appreciate it, Allison. My pleasure. Anytime. Do you have a suggestion, episode idea, or a great story to tell? Contact us at vitalscience at crl.com. Be sure to find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit us at criver.com slash vitalsciencepodcast. Also, be sure to check out our sister podcast, Sounds of Science, focusing on innovation and trends in the life science industry. Thanks for listening to this episode of Vital Science. I'm Gina Mullane. Have a great day.